Today's podcast is brought to you by the American Society of Human Genetics, supporting scientific discovery, education, and advocacy by human genetic specialists worldwide. From the CQ Roll Call Newsroom in Washington, this is CQ Now, your nonpartisan news source for how the inside workings of Congress and the federal government shape the real world. Will Congress make women eligible for the military draft? Will it dip into war funds to buy the Pentagon more planes and ships? Now that Donald Trump has made an uneasy peace with Republican congressional leaders, how will he and the party establishment handle fundraising? And on the subject of money, has the logjam holding up bills to fund the government next year really been broken, or is gridlock looming again just around the corner. I'm Adriel Bettelheim with CQ Roll Call, joined by national security reporter John Donnelly, political columnist Nathan Gonzalez, and CQ budget tracker editor David Lerman. John, the annual defense policy bill is one of the biggest things Congress does every year, and it's one of the only bills that we're almost certain is going to pass. This year, defense hawks want to use it to uh, address what they see as shortfalls in the Pentagon's budget, right? That's right. The defense authorization bill, which sets policy and authorizes spending, it doesn't actually contain money. The one, the, the bill that the House Armed Services Committee uh, put out on April 27th would authorize $610 billion in spending, which is the total amount that the president requested. They gave him what he requested for these core Defense Department programs, and they gave him what he requested in the pot of money that goes for the war. However, the $59 billion they gave him for the war, they said that $23 billion of that has to go for core or base programs. He asked for $5 billion of the $59 billion. They gave him $23 billion of the $59 billion. And what, they, what they're doing is they are adding money for a lot of procurement programs and upkeep of facilities and a, a lot of weapons – to most of all, that the president didn't officially request, but that the generals and admirals would like. Like, for example, $3 billion worth of fighter jets, F-35 and F-18 fighter jets. So that's the way that they gave more of what the Pentagon wanted without increasing the total. But the way they did it, the way they didn't increase the war total was by shortchanging the amount of money that the troops on the front lines are getting. They said, you're only getting seven months worth of war money so that we can fit all this other stuff under that $59 billion, if that makes sense. So the core question, whether they can dip into the war budget to buy more material, more equipment, more, more ships, more fighter planes for the services. Right. And now over in the Senate, the Armed Services Committee did not do the same thing. So when these two bills have to reckon, be something reconciled in conference, they're going to have a huge uh, discrepancy. And the appropriators in the House reflected what the authorizers in the House did. So now it remains to be seen what the Senate appropriators, who have not acted yet, will do on this question. And that's where the real rubber will meet the road because that's where the real money is in the appropriations panels. Now, one of the biggest friction points beyond money is whether to require women to register for the draft. The Senate and House defense policy bills both would do that for the first time, but there's certain to be a, a big high-profile floor fight over this, right? Right. This is uh, – the question is whether women should register for the selective service so that their names and data are available if there was a draft. And there's, no, there's nothing in the cards that suggests there would be a draft anytime soon. The Defense Department last year said women should be able to compete for any and all 
combat positions, including ones they had previously been blocked from. So that was the main decision, and, and supporters of having women, women register for the selective service say, this is just a logical extension of that. If women can compete for any job, they should have to register for the draft. And people who oppose women registering for the draft, my sense of it is, they really oppose women getting combat jobs. They, and so they're using this issue as sort of a way in to block that policy. Another bone of contention, a new contract to replace the Vietnam-era Huey helicopters that are supposed to protect nuclear missile sites from terrorist attacks. This is a story you originally broke, and this is now materializing also in the defense policy bill. Yeah, there's a, there's a big debate about this. There's 62 helicopters in this fleet. About half of them are used to protect the ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missile sites in the northern Great Plains. The other half are used for very highly classified continuity of government operations. In other words, ferrying VIPs in Washington, D.C. in the case of a catastrophe. But the real issue and the thing that we disclosed back in February was that the Huey helicopters that are meant to ferry security personnel to protect ICBMs are not anymore up to the task, no longer up to the task. They don't have the range, the payload, etc. And so um, the question is, they need to be replaced. And the question is how. Some say, let's do it right away by just going out and buying Blackhawks. Others say, no, we need to have a competition. And there are a little, there are parochial angles on both sides. It's about two and a half billion dollars potentially in uh, in contracts that are up for grabs. So uh, there are a lot of people interested in buying for that. So there are various ways that the two bills are approaching it. It gets a little complicated, but suffice it to say, it's a it's a big battle that entails security of our nuclear forces and top dollar contracts. Nathan, it was touching to see Donald Trump have a kumbaya moment for the cameras with Republican congressional leaders last week. So how are his campaign and the party apparatus going to split up fundraising duties, or are they? Well, I think that conversation is just getting started. I think that's what the recent meetings when you know, Trump went to the RNC, went with, met with leaders of the NRCC, the, uh, the NRSC, I think that that's starting to be worked out because traditionally – the presidential nominee works hand-in-hand hand with the RNC in order to get the resources necessary. Because there really hasn't been any relationship at all between Trump and the Republican National Committee, it's all a little bit unclear right now. And because of Trump and his uh, being such a wild card in the race, there's, a, there's at least some talk about you know, should money be shifted toward Senate races more than usual in a presidential year or making sure the Republicans keep the House. So you know, I don't think that there's a lot of clarity right now, but at least I think some Republicans in Washington are taking some comfort that the door has been open, a line of communication is open with Donald Trump and the campaign, and that there's a path forward to at least discussing how to, how to move forward. Some of Trump's anti-establishment appeal was based on the fact that, hey, he's a rich guy. He doesn't need to go through the traditional sordid exercise of political fundraising. Uh, true or not true? Exactly. There are some Republican donors, some big donors who contribute more to outside groups who are thinking, hey, you got this far on this pedestal of I'm a self-funder. And they're saying, great. 
go for it. Uh, and, and, and maybe some of them will come around to Trump. Some of them, though, might focus on the Senate and those critical states that are in play. The thinking being that if there is a president, Hillary Clinton, the money and the resource has to go to keep the Republican majority in the Senate to keep her in check. The re- vulnerable Republican senators are trying to find a balance between how to not alienate Trump supporters but get them to vote and, and not run with Trump specifically. And I think they might do that by with a check and balance argument saying we have to make sure that President Hillary Clinton doesn't have the Senate, won't control the Supreme Court. I think that check and balance argument is going to be prevalent in the months to come. I'm really curious, what do you think will happen to the hashtag never Trump voters uh, when November rolls around? I think that's one of the biggest questions of this election cycle. So I think that some of the never Trump voters will turn into never Hillary voters. It's just taking them a while to come around. But let's take a group that I'm calling embarrassed Republicans, people who are legitimately cannot vote for Donald Trump. They can't vote for Hillary Clinton. This election, if, if, if they turn out to vote and don't vote for president but still vote for vulnerable senator like Rob Portman of Ohio or Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, then it won't be such a bad night. It'll be a bad night. They'll lose the White House. Uh, but if those never-Trump voters don't vote at all and stay home, that's when the Republican collapse will happen because the vulnerable Republican senators and, and members of the House, they can't afford to have any Republicans stay home. They need every Republican they can get. And that still doesn't get them to the finish line. Then they have to get independents and Democrats. So the never, the embarrassed Republicans, the never-Trump Republicans, they are critical to how bad this election is going to be for the Republican Party. Now, should Trump lose, there are differing views on the role Paul Ryan, the speaker, will play. Will he become the de facto Republican leader or not? You and your colleague Stu Rothenberg have different views, right? Right. Stu wrote a great column, you know, and I've been working with Stu for for many years. I owe him a lot. He wrote a very uh, reasonable column how if Donald Trump loses, Paul Ryan would become the de facto uh, leader of the Republican Party and be in position to be the party's nominee in 2020. I see it a little bit differently that if Republicans lose, let's say they lose 20 seats in the House, so not 30, they'll be in the majority. If they lose 20 seats, those 20 are most likely to come from mainstream Republican incumbents that lose. That will increase the influence of the House Freedom Caucus. And I don't think there is a guarantee that Paul Ryan is Speaker of the House next year because, uh, I mean, I was kind of surprised he pulled the coalition together uh, when he did to get this far. Right. But I just I'm not even sure that he's Speaker next year. And I'm not sure how that then plays into him being kind of the anointed one for 2020. I think we have a lot. Uh, we have a long way to go uh, before we get that far. Well, speaking of Republican leaders, uh, David Lerman, it was uh, a big day in the Senate when the chamber, after only three weeks, passed its first spending bill, the not always controversial energy and water measure. But that was actually a a big accomplishment. Um, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has talked about more transparency in doing spending bills to fund the government. What's now? Uh, It sounds like there's a package of combined bills coming down the pike. Yeah, imagine, Adriel, they actually passed a spending bill. Uh, Shocking. Uh, And they were so proud of it, they actually took time on the Senate floor yesterday to congratulate themselves about it, (laughs) which, you know, normally is passing a spending bill should be the most fundamental thing they do and not a big deal. And it's certainly not a big deal, I don't think, to most Americans. But we, you know, the budget process has been so broken for so long 
that they were almost astonished that they could get a bill passed. Now, look, that's one bill. There's 11 more to go, and time is running out. So the chances, I think, of, of getting all these bills done in time for the new fiscal year, which starts October 1st, probably isn't good, just like it hasn't been good in past years. We're probably going to have to have another stopgap measure to avoid a government shutdown in the fall, um, just because I think there's only about 45 legislative days left before the new fiscal year kicks in. And just think about it. They, they just did their first bill yesterday. So 11 more to go, and they have, the House has to do all of its. They have to conference together. So the chances of getting them all done are about nil. But one way to expedite it is to take some of the, oh, less controversial ones and, and bundle it together. So the next one, that's right. military construction, veterans affairs, and what else? So they're trying to combine two bills now uh, for a bunch of procedural reasons that are hopelessly boring to get into. But they're trying to combine a bill that funds military construction projects and the Department of Veterans Affairs with another bill that funds the Transportation Department and Housing Urban Urban Development, hoping that they can package them together and push them through maybe a little faster. Um, We'll see. And complicating that is the still-simmering debate over how to respond to the Zika virus outbreak and how much money to throw at that. Yeah, and for all the big money that they're talking about, uh, they've been obsessed with the relatively small amount that it's going to take to, on an emergency basis, combat the Zika virus. We've got a a bit of mosquito madness right now up on Capitol Hill because there's a huge debate over how much money is actually needed for Zika this year and how to pay for it if they need to pay for it. And, of course, you could have this bizarre situation where money to fund Zika will come out of a housing program or a transportation program or maybe even a military base. Well, there are some senators that are pushing and some House Republicans that are pushing to offset the cost of this extra Zika money with spending cuts elsewhere so we don't enlarge the deficit. Others argue, look, this is an emergency. We have summer is coming. Mosquitoes are coming. We have to act quickly. We can't afford fights over spending. Let's just pass this on an emergency basis. We're not sure who's going to win out on that. Now, the action has been largely confined to the Senate, but finally it looks like the House will also start moving its version of 2017 spending bills, even though the Republican Party in the House, the caucus there, is kind of still having a civil war over budget and spending, right? That's right. The, the, the fractious Republican caucus in the House cannot agree on overall spending levels. So they've been unable to bring spending bills to the floor under the budget rules. This will be the first week that they're even allowed to bring a spending bill to the floor, and they're supposed to potentially bring one. The the military construction bill may come to the floor this coming week. Uh, That's typically the easiest of the 12 bills to get done, and so you may see that this week. And I think adding to the heat that they're facing here is that there, there are still primaries, and, and they're up for re-election. I mean, a lot of, some of these Republican members are nervous. Everyone's running scared after Eric Cantor lost last cycle, and so there's this reluctance to vote for more spending because they're afraid of a conservative challenger. And so I think that just adds a, another layer of complexity to this. Right, Nathan, and that really illustrates why this budget has become such a nightmare. The conservative faction in the House really doesn't buy into the overall spending limit that had been agreed to last year. They didn't buy it last year, and they're not buying it this year, and they want to see it changed. And because of that, Paul Ryan does not have enough votes right now to get a budget through.
CQ Budget Tracker editor David Lerman. Thank you for your time. My thanks, too, to Nathan Gonzalez, the editor and publisher of the Rothenberg-Gonzalez Political Report, and to national security reporter John Donnelly. I'm Adriel Bettelheim. Thanks for listening. Until next time, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at CQ Now, and you can download our podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher.